following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Friends, if you'll open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Friends, I invite you to hear the words of our living God this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read through 22. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. By having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, with, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we come to the end, right? Throughout this letter, we've had the opportunity and the blessing to see what has been on Paul's mind as he awaits his coming execution. 
He knows that death is on the door, like on the doorstop. Uh, He's waiting. In just any moment, he knows that it'll come. And so he's been put to task. He's worked. We've got to see as we plumb the depths of Paul's mind, what was important to him? What's been the drive? What's remained the same? He's kept his focus. Even as he awaits what is sure to come, he has his focus in mind. And what was that? The gospel. The continuation of it. That it would be preached and that his brother and son in the faith, Timothy, would be persevering in it. That he would be a faithful steward of that gospel. So without re-preaching every sermon and keeping you here for 20 plus hours, I would like to briefly sum up where we've come through to get to this point. So we're going to make some quick sweeping passes just to kind of sum up this final push as we come to the end. Starting in chapter 1, we got to see that indeed this letter came from Paul, the apostle, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He lays out his apostolic authority and he writes to his beloved child, Timothy. Paul then dives right into the meat, right? He goes on to say that Timothy has a sincere faith that was first found in his grandmother and his mother and now claimed by Timothy himself. And it was for this very reason that Timothy must fan fan into flame the gift of God that was given to him. Paul then calls on him to not be afraid, for that is not the spirit that was given to him. Rather, he had been given one of love and power and self-control, and therefore he reminds him, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Then Paul gives him a beautiful look into the truth of who Christ is and the gospel for which Paul himself says, I am not ashamed. So Timothy, follow suit. Do not be ashamed yourself. In chapter 2, we see Paul call upon Timothy to be strengthened by grace and entrust this ministry to others. Paul has done this work and he's passed on this gospel and he's entrusted other men to go forth with this gospel message. And he says, Timothy, you do the same. Follow suit. And he calls on him to be singularly focused, as Paul has done his whole ministry. He calls on him to be a good, suffering soldier, one who desires first and foremost to please the one who enlisted him. To compete as one, according to the rules, a good athlete that desires to win the race. A hardworking farmer who wants to see the first share of his crops. He wants to receive those. And then he moves on to bring to to light this Christ who we believe in and the salvation that comes only through him. And then we get this beautiful saying at the end of chapter 2. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What a beautiful little summation there as he calls us to remember the fact that Christ is always faithful. We will fail, we will fall, we will trip up and we will hurt ourselves, but Christ is always faithful. And then finally, he calls on Timothy in the end here to be a vessel for honorable use, 
How, does he, how is he to do that? Rid himself of everything that is dishonorable. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness and faith, love, and peace. And moving into chapter 3, we're brought the sobering reality that in the last days, there will be people that are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. The reality is true. We see it today. There are people that are lovers of self self rather than lovers of God. But then he ends that little section with a bit of hope. And he says, but God will make it plain to all the folly of these people, the folly of their false doctrines and their false teachings. All of that will come to light. And then he comes out to the beautiful truth, this beautiful summation that we cling to as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And with this beautiful reality, that the scriptures are truly God's word, he comes into chapter 4 and he says, So Timothy, preach the word. Timothy would face all kinds of falsehoods, all kinds of false teachers, as we do today. And what is he told? Preach the word. Don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on everything else that's going around. Preach the word. Knowing that in the end, Timothy and all faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will receive a crown of righteousness. And here we are to our text. We come to the end. Done the whirlwind tour here. And so now we come to these final verses. I'm sure many of your translations have titled this section, verses 9 at least, 9 through 18, personal instructions. Personal instructions. And that gives kind of a, I mean, it's a sense of what it is. Yes, there are personal instructions, but it almost doesn't grasp the entirety of what's here. It almost gives us this feeling of, okay, I'll read up to verse 8, and then I can skip maybe until like verse 22 when we get to the final blessing, and then that's it, because those are all personal instructions. What do I care? But there's so much there, and we're going to look into it, and we're going to see that. We know God's word is breathed out by him, and it's profitable, so we're going to enjoy it. We're going to sit in it, we're going to live in it. So as we do so, We're going to see that Paul, the faithful servant of the Lord and this apostle of Christ Jesus, will show his his true colors of who he is. We've seen it throughout all of his writings, right? We see these pieces of who Paul is, his faithfulness, his love, his rebukes, his reproofs. We've seen his call, his beliefs, this call to grace. And at the very end here, we get to see where he really is. We see his steadfast love for the Lord. We see his true commitment to the Great Commission. And we see him completing the ministry that had been entrusted to him. The funny part is, is Paul has just said, literally just said, I have finished the race. And yet, he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop working. He doesn't put his pen down and say, well, I finished my race and end of letter. He keeps writing. He has more to say. As I was thinking on this passage, uh, I, it reminded me of 
videos that you see of marathon runners, right? And you have these certain type, it's a certain type of individual and it reminds me of Paul. And they finish the race, they're strong, they look halfway decent, not too exhausted just yet. And they look back out onto the field and they see others that are struggling. And they see them, sometimes friends, sometimes rivals, struggling, collapsing on the tarmac as they try to make it to the end of the line. And Paul is like this guy. He goes back out there, picks him up and says, come on, man, you got to finish. You have to finish. You got to come with me. You got to make it to this end. And that's almost what Paul does here in this final little bit. He picks up his pen and he says, there's still more to do. Finish your race. Come join me. Come receive your crown of righteousness. He has said he has this clear conscience. And now as he looks back on these other runners, he says, I need to continue working until I can't anymore. I can still help. I have more to do. I'm not done. My mind is still working. My hand is still working. And until I am led to my executioner, I can continue to work. So as we do so this morning, I invite you to see Paul doing just that going back into the race, finding those athletes that are running the race, but starting to dwindle or starting to find themselves tired, feeling beaten. And he's going back out and saying, no, come, come, we can make it. We're almost there. So as we do so today, I invite you to hear our overarching points for this morning. There's gonna be six of them. First, in verses nine or in verse nine, a grave request. Verse 10a, a grievous desertion. Verses 10b through 13, a grand obsession. Verse 14 through 17, a godless opposition. Verse 18, a glorious deliverance. And finally, in verse 19 through 22, a gracious departure. So with that, friends, let's dive right into our text this morning. So we look at verse 9, a grave request. Do your best to come to me soon. Seems pretty straightforward, and it is. But I want to remind you of something here. Paul is sitting in a prison cell, awaiting what he knows is going to come. There may be another trial. There may be an opportunity where he'll make another defense, but he knows he is going to die. He knows that his death is on, the, is on the doorstep. It's waiting. And so as Paul is nearing the end, what does he desire? He says, I desire to be joined by Timothy. Remember, it's in regards to Timothy that Paul said in his first letter, my true child in the faith. And in his second letter, my beloved child. It was Timothy that Paul sent to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 4, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. It was Timothy in Philippians that Paul desired to send to the church. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, he says, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy had a special place in Paul's heart. And therefore, Paul desired that he visit him at this crucial time. 
So, so hence he says, do your best to come to me soon. Put every effort forward. Do all that you can because the time is coming near. Make haste to return to me so that I might see you one time before I depart this earth. So we see Paul has this mindset of wanting to, one, encourage him, but also be encouraged at this end time. He desires the fellowship that comes through faithful believers. So we've seen this first point here, a grave request. Let us turn our attention now to verse 10a. We're going to just split it up as we look at a grievous desertion. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We see Paul do something interesting here, right? He talks about the importance of this faithful friend, this faithful brother, this importance of having this fellowship with him. But then he turns our attention. He does these contrasting things. We've talked about this throughout 2 Timothy. He's very good at contrasting. He says, here's what you are to do. Here's what others do. Here's who you are. Here's what others are. This is what faithful looks like. This is what unfaithful looks like. And he does it again. He says, faithful one, come to me. But then he gives him this story of a one who has left him. He says, for Demas. Who is Demas, right? We see him mentioned previously. In Colossians chapter 4, he's seen as being kind of a faithful friend of Paul. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Our second view is in Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So Demas has been this fellow worker with Paul, and so he seemed to be in good standing. However, something's happened. We don't know what exactly it is, but we know the, the problem here. We don't know exactly the situation that caused it, but we know the problem. He's in love with the present world. The vigor and the drive that seemed to characterize Demas, that made Paul feel comfortable writing of him as a fellow worker, has faded. He found himself more in love with this present world than with the Lord. Remember 1 John chapter 2, right? The Probably one of the more common verses. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, Demas loved the world. And therefore, the Father was not in him. And he says he has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What does that mean? Why did he desert him to Thessalonica? We really don't know. We don't understand why Thessalonica in particular it could be because that was home for him. It could be because he felt like it was a safe place. Maybe he even wanted to continue to profess to be a Christian and thought that this was a safe spot where he could land and not be persecuted. So we don't know if Demas renounced all faith. We don't know that he desired just to be in a safer place where he could be free from the persecution that was coming for Paul. But we know he left him. And it left Paul with a real sense of pain. As he accepts the reality of his own death, I'm sure he must have felt a true sadness that this fellow brother who had been with him through so much left, deserted him. Right as the hardship had reached its peak, he up and walked out. However, this was not going to deter Paul. He was going to be deserted. He knew that. He knew that not everyone was going to stick with him. 
Because faithful believers will, but he knew they wouldn't, not all were. He knew that there was going to be challenges. And that's why so frequently through his letters we see it, and we see it especially in Timothy, he calls for him to endure suffering, to stand firm in the gospel, to be able to stand according to the truth that is there. And so as he prepares for his coming death, knowing that he has experienced already hardships and desertions, we see that Paul is ready. So we're going to see now in our third point, a grand obsession, how Paul is ready for this. We see Paul's true devotion to the ministry and how it consumes him, even in his prison cell. You'd think you're locked up, right? And you think to yourself, what more can I do? He thinks to himself, I can't go out and preach anymore. No one can hear me. I'm in a prison cell. Maybe the guard, and that might be it. And I'm sure he preached to that guard, thankfully. But that wasn't it. He said, there's still more I can do. And we're going to see this because his obsession is there. He has this grand obsession with the proclamation of this gospel. He has a grand obsession with the gospel going forth into the world to save weary sinners that he, like he once was. So let us turn our attention now to 10b through verse 13. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Those first three people that he mentions, Cretans, Titus, and Luke, are serving in ministerial roles. Cretans, he says, has gone to Galatia. Who is he? Well, we don't really know who Cretans is. All we know is that rather than being a deserter like Demas, he has gone out somewhere. He has been sent out to serve in Galatia. Cretans, therefore, must have been a faithful leader, a proclaimer of God's word, to be sent to the city to minister and to serve the local body there. And so it's an encouragement because for the Demas that you have, you have Cretans and you have Titus and you have Luke and you have Mark and you have Timothy and you have these men that are out faithfully working. He says, Titus to Dalmatia. Unlike Cretans, we know a bit about Titus. There's a whole letter written to him, which Lord willing, someday we'll get to work through together. He's mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians alone and twice in Galatians. Titus was a clear, useful servant. A man that was trusted by Paul for teaching and building up struggling churches and struggling areas. He says in, first, or in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus was a faithful leader, a faithful man, a faithful servant. And he had the ability to direct people. He had ability to build up a church, to create structure there. And so he was sent out to Dalmatia. So why there? Well, we're not certain. Some have argued that he, because he was left in Crete, and it says in Titus a little later, chapter 3, he calls on him to meet him at Nicopolis, where he may have then sent him north to Dalmatia. Either way, 
Paul desired that he continue the spread of the gospel, building up churches and building up individuals to lead those churches. And then he says, Luke alone is with me. Some have said that that's a really disparaging comment. It's like he says, well, Cretans is gone. Titus is gone. I guess I'm left with Luke. (laughs) But I wouldn't say that. I think it's actually an encouragement here. First, who is Luke, right? He's the author of the longest of the four Gospels. He's the author of Acts. He's only mentioned by name three times in the New Testament. And he's the only New Testament author that was actually a Gentile. And so it's interesting because we make it seem like Luke, like it was a disparaging comment, like, man, if I could have literally anyone else, I would take him. But I have Luke. It's like, no, Luke was a faithful brother in the Lord there to encourage him. Colossians chapter 4, Luke, the beloved physician. Philemon 24, he's counted as one of the fellow workers. It's believed that because of his skills as a writer, because of his knowledge and education, that he was sometimes amanuensis for Paul. Amanuensis being one who dictates or writes the dictation from someone else, makes copies of letters. And so it's believed that Luke may have been that for Paul. And so he may have been there with him specifically as Paul is dictating these words and Luke is there to write them down, to help get them onto paper, to make copies so that they might go out to the churches. While we don't know much of Luke as a doctor, based on his medical work, we can see that he was an evangelist. You see it in his gospel. He was this historian as he wrote this history of Christ in the early church. He traveled with Paul and he stayed active with Paul in his ministry. He talks about himself in the, um, like in a pronoun more, in a plural pronoun in Acts than he does about himself personally. Acts chapter 16 is a perfect example. He says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, him and Paul, sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, him and Paul again, to preach the gospel to them. He was with Paul at Troas at Philipp- and Philippi during his second missionary journey. He joined him again at the end of his third and went with him to Jerusalem to face arrest and imprisonment. He accompanied Paul on his trip to Rome, was shipwrecked off of the shores of Malta, ministered in Rome with him during his first imprisonment, and now he is standing by his side, ready to serve and care for him. No, it's an encouragement. Luke alone is with me. This faithful man has stayed by my side. And he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Mark, also known as John, John Mark, native of Jerusalem, had been very fortunate because he had been able to be with the apostles growing up. His mother was the home and the center of Jerusalem where Peter arrived when he had been delivered from the prison by an angel. It's John Mark that has kind of held this special place in the church. He had gone with Paul on his first missionary journey, but returned home after a little while, and we don't know why. But we do know that it caused a rift. 
This is what ended up causing Paul and Barnabas to split ways and go in different, different directions. Paul taking Silas and going off and Barnabas taking John Mark and going off. So what happened after, we don't know. But think about the beauty of how God works, right? John Mark, this brother in the Lord who had deserted them or left them at some point, causing this rift where Paul was basically, I don't want that guy here. I don't, I don't know. He doesn't need to come with us. I don't need him with me. As now saying, bring Mark. He's useful. I need Mark here with me. Even based on his past failures, he presents himself to be a useful servant. Think about what that means for you, believer. You've all made mistakes. I have. We've all had failures. I have. But you can still be a useful servant. What a gracious gift that we have in the fact that the Lord allows us to turn from wickedness, to turn to him, and to become these useful servants, to be washed clean. That one day someone might call on us and say, you know, bring him with you. He's useful. He's helpful. Bring him along. He, could, he can be helpful. Maybe not in the preaching ministry, maybe not in those things, but bring him along because he's a good and faithful servant of the Lord. Be encouraged by that because we see Demas and that's kind of a discouragement, right? He leaves. Then you have these faithful men, but you don't have any sense of, did they ever have hardships? Did they ever have struggles? Things like that. But then you get Mark and it's like, Mark, man, he messed up somewhere. I don't think Paul was one that was quick to just be like, I'm done with you. Something really had to have gone down. And at this point, he says, bring him with me. Bring him here. I need him. And now he turns his attention to Tychicus. I have sent to Ephesus. He was a faithful servant of Paul who was known to deliver his letters. Ephesians chapter 6. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him for this very purpose, that you may know how, so that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Colossians chapter four: He will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Titus chapter three: We decide when I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. It's unclear if Tychicus was being sent to Ephesus to, to deliver this letter or to just provide support to Timothy. But either way, we see that he was a faithful servant. He was one that was entrusted with what would probably be some of the most precious cargo in all of time, Paul's letters. We look to Paul's letters and we can then thank him, Tychicus, because he was the one that delivered some of these. What a blessing that is, because if he had been an unfaithful servant, losing the letter, dropping it somewhere, not getting to his destination, getting caught up in the world, we may not have him here today. But he was a faithful servant and the Lord used him for that. And then he comes to this kind of interesting climax. He's talked about people. He's talked about this ongoing work of the ministry. We see that Paul has been utterly consumed because he looks out and he says, where are all of the men that I have worked with? Where have they gone? What are they doing? And that's of utmost importance to him. Of utmost importance that he makes mention of it. For us to see that the gospel is continuing to go out. That he is sending these men out to go and to serve. And he comes to this and he says, when you come, bring the cloak. 
that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. And you think, wow, he's talked about the gospel and now he comes to these truly like personal items that he wants. Why? What's so important? Well, Paul probably stayed with Carpus while he was ministering in Troas. And it's quite feasible that the, the church actually met in Carpus's home. And Paul had entrusted him with some things. Well, those things are of utmost importance right now. Why? Because Paul is about to spend a winter in a Roman prison cell. It's going to be cold. It's going to be brutal. He needs his cloak, this heavy wool garment that could be used as a, a coat or as a blanket. He knew what he was going to be facing and he says, I have work I still need to do. If I'm going to write, I need to have my cloak. I can't have a shaky hand as I pen the words that I need to write. I can't have shaky hands as I try to read the letters. I can't try and do this ministry if I'm so caught up by this brutal cold. And he says also the books, talking about probably scrolls that contain the Old Testament it was important for him that he would be encouraged by the Old Testament. Remember the sacred writings that we saw that he tells about, uh, talks about with Timothy. And he says, this is of utmost importance that I have these, these scrolls, I have these letters, I have these books that I can go back and read and be refreshed in. But then he says, above all, the parchments. Parchments would have been sheets that were made from especially made from like an animal hide. They were meant to be durable and they were meant to last and they were expensive. They were not a cheap thing. They were very expensive. And he was very, it was very important that he had these. But we don't know if the parchments were blank, like he was going to write a letter, or filled with scriptures or copies of his own letters. We can be certain that Paul was not just going to up and stop his ministry. He was going to continue to read and to study and to write and to pray until his final breath. So one question that's asked, and I saw it in numerous commentaries, is why, why did he leave such expensive items somewhere else? You're going to prison. Why didn't you bring your expensive items with you? Um, and the argument is, is that it's possible he was arrested when he was out preaching and just no opportunity to get him. But now the time has come. He needs them. He's ready for work. And all he has is time on his hands. What a blessing it is, though, because we see faithful men throughout history who have done these same things. Adoniram Judson. You have men like that who have spent time in prison and some of their most well-known efforts were done while they were in prison. When they have nothing else, when they have nothing to distract them, when they have nothing else that's preventing them from their work, I mean, we see that even with like Wycliffe and Huss and men like that who were sent to prison for periods of time in some of their most, or sent even into kind of a, a retreat of like trying to get away from, from the oncoming attacks, right? They're trying to save themselves or people are trying to save them. As they sit in hiding, some of their greatest works were written. And Paul here is doing the same thing. So with the arrest on his mind, Knowing that he has this ministry still, let us turn our attention to our fourth point, a godless opposition. As we look at verses 14 through 16, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, 
The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. It's not certain who this Alexander is. It could have been Alexander that he mentioned in 1 Timothy with Hymenaeus and Alexander that he says he had handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Some have suggested that it's a different Alexander and Alexander being a common name, Paul was trying to identify him by his profession saying this specific one, the coppersmith. Either way, what we know is that this Alexander, this coppersmith, had done great harm to Paul. What that harm was, once again, he doesn't give us a lot of detail here. Some have suggested that Alexander was involved in the arrest of Paul. And so Paul saw it as a, a great harm. If he is indeed the one mentioned in 1 Timothy, Paul could be addressing specifically his opposition to the very gospel message, the damage that he was trying to do to the preaching ministry of Paul, trying to prevent others from hearing the truth that they desperately needed to hear, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Either way, they were at odds. And Paul says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. For having done great harm against Paul or against the ministry, Paul writes, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He entrusted that God would indeed execute his own justice. And therefore, Paul was not worried about it. He wasn't sitting in prison fretting over, well, what about Alexander? What am I, how do I stop him? He says, the Lord will execute his own justice. Remember Romans chapter 12, verse 19 Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, and he cites back to Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But he doesn't, as Paul even isn't concerned with him being avenged, he is concerned that Timothy doesn't get entrapped with him. He says, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message Paul urges Timothy, act in wisdom. Be aware, be on guard. You have a task at hand. You're here to come see me. Don't get caught up with this guy right now. There was no reason for Timothy to engage him when he had other tasks at hand. For he had, he had strongly opposed the message. He strongly opposed the truth. Worse than any harm he had done to Paul personally was the fact that he had opposed the truth. And it was for that he had become an enemy of God and an enemy of the church. So Paul urges Timothy, be on the lookout. Avoid being caught up. Don't get entangled with this guy. And then he says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. In Roman courts, the accused would have usually two hearings or opportunities to make a verbal defense. An apologia, as they would say, right? Wherein they could make their arguments. They could make their defense. So Paul is specifically speaking about his first time before these Roman courts. Whatever the trial was, he says no one was there for him. No one came to stand by him. This could mean that there was no one to defend him or no one to testify on his behalf. He was alone, though. He felt deserted. This obviously doesn't mean that Luke had left. This doesn't mean that there are other men that were ministering in other areas, but they just weren't with him in this very instance. 
Some have argued that Paul was, had become so prominent in the Christian world and so well known with this way, this gospel message, that Nero himself came to oversee the hearing. Nero being the one who would be so anti-Christian that he would go on to burn Christians at the stake. He would be the one that would sow Christians to other animals to be then attacked by dogs. It was Nero that some have said was there to see Paul and to execute justice that he, as he saw it fit. And so it was almost this head-to-head battle between this anti-Christ, this anti-Christian, and this faithful defender of truth. And what does Paul say, though? He says, may it not be charged against them, those that didn't stand with him. Well, there were those that did not stand with Paul, but deserted him, possibly from fear of dying alongside him. He calls upon the Lord and he says, may it not be counted against them. Where else do we see this sense of forgiveness, right? But the Lord himself. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he's on a cross, as he's dying, he looks and he says, forgive them. So in the midst of this godless opposition, Paul points to the rescue, though, of the Lord. Let's turn our attention here to verses 17 and 18. We see this beautiful reality that Paul was never really alone. We're never really alone as faithful believers. A glorious deliverance, verses 17 and 18. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. As Paul looked out at this Roman court, probably hundreds if not thousands of people gathered to see this man that has caused such a stir on trial. Hordes of onlookers snickering and talking. The weight of the world almost seeming to weigh down. The whole world is staring upon him. And he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He felt the encouragement and the power he needed to be able to continue on. And notice the outcome of that, right? Because the Lord stood by him. He says, so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. As you think about this, Paul is standing there. And this head-to-head battle, right? We said the Antichrist, the anti-Christian, Nero, against the faithful leader in the faith, Paul. And the battle is like, it's, it's like the fight has started. And Nero is going to start throwing blows. He's going to start accusing him of all kinds of falsehoods and saying, you do this and you do this and you do this. And what does Paul do as his return? He preaches the gospel. He looks around at all of these men and all these women that have gathered to come and see him on trial. And he says, here's my chance. Repent, believe on Christ. Turn from your wicked ways and hear that you are in desperate need of the Lord and Savior Jesus. The one that has died has now risen. Believe in him that you might have eternal life. Paul knew his call. He was called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and there was a whole lot of them there. Imagine that boldness, right? Standing there in this Roman court, the ultimate antichrist of that time, 
looking down on him possibly and saying, you have totally twisted everything. You've messed up this everything. You're, he probably was making all kinds of false accusations that they did against Christians, calling them ancestral, saying that they were cannibals, saying all these things, and says, he's throwing all kinds of things, and Paul says, repent. Believe on Christ. What a boldness. And what an encouragement for us. Because remember, he just said earlier, he said, you were not given a spirit of fear, but of one of love and self-control and power. You have the same boldness, friends. You have the same boldness that you can stand in a Roman court with the ultimate death coming to you, and you can proclaim the gospel. So Paul did that. Friends, I encourage you, you go out into this world, it doesn't matter what's being thrown at you, proclaim the gospel. You have been given a task, proclaim it. Paul knew what was going to come. As he said it, he probably was looking at those words, saying those, and he says, as I say these, I am going to die for this. And he kept talking. He didn't stop. What more do you need, friends? What's the worst that someone's going to do? Make fun of you? Call you names? I mean, it's not fun. I'm not, I'm not, I don't enjoy it. No one does. But what's the worst? If you die for it, then what a blessing, right? To be returned to the Lord. To join Him again in eternity. As He said earlier, right? If we endure, we'll also reign with Him. What a beautiful gift we have. And he says then, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He stood before these Roman courts. At any point, they could have just hauled him away and said, we don't want to hear it anymore. Chop his head off and be done with it. But he was rescued from the lion's mouth, pointing to these, this ability of the courts to just call for his death. His death was right there. It was like the lion had put its a mouth around his head and could just snap down at any second and be done with him. But he was rescued from that death. He knew it would come. It was going to come. But he was given a reprieve for the time as he awaited his second hearing. And so he said, man, I'm ready to go back to work then. Put me back in prison. I got letters to write. I got books to read. I got praying to do. One interesting observation that is made about this text specifically is that it relates similarly to the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, as they look on Psalm 22. Verse 16, he says, All deserted me. Psalm 22, why have you forsaken me? Verse 16, no one came to stand by me. Verse 20, or, uh, chapter 22 of or, Psalm 22, verse 11, there is none to help. Verse 17 here, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Psalm 22, 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. Verse 17, and all the Gentiles might hear. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And we'll see in verse 18. He says, and bring me safely into his kingdom. Psalm 22 and verse 28. Kingship belongs to the Lord. It's interesting because you have the Lord Jesus Christ echoing so much of Psalm 22. And then you have Paul following suit. Echoing Psalm 22 as he 
awaits his, his coming death. And he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. So right off the bat, you may ask the question, but Paul's dead. So what is, how is he rescued from every evil deed? Doesn't sound like the Lord worked if he was able to die, right? But that's not what Paul was speaking to. He was saying that there would be evil deeds and attacks against him, but the Lord would establish him. He would keep him. He would never lose his faith. He would have that boldness and courage to finish the race to the very end and to be able to go back and get others. Not to just sit and drink water and recoup after such a long and weary road, but to go back out into the fight to carry the other soldiers back back home, back to home base. Paul knew that the death would come, but he knew that the Lord would keep him to the end. Think about that for you. As you face the variety of onslaughts that happen, your own flesh, the temptations that are out there, your own heart that just is still cleaning out this filth that is there, the sanctification process as it removes it, be encouraged that no matter what, the Lord can keep you to the end. And he says, and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So Paul was saved from the lion's mouth. He'll be rescued from every evil deed. But he knew he could confidently say then that the Lord would bring him safely home. I know where I'm going, Paul says. He will bring me back to his kingdom. It made me think of uh, Christ, the sure and steady anchor. It's a beautiful song. And while Paul didn't obviously have that song at that time, I just want to repeat these final words of it. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we'll cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. It's almost as if Paul could look back and say, I'm good, I know where I'm going. I'll be brought safely into the kingdom. And he closes with this doxology. He says, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew that he would receive his crown of righteousness as we saw. And he knew that he would reign with Christ forevermore. And so all he could do was cry out to him, to you, Lord, be glory. Soli Deo Gloria. May glory alone be this forefront of our minds because that was also the forefront of Paul's. Why was he so faithful to this gospel message? Why was he so faithful to continue in his work? Why did, as he's waiting for his death, he continue to read and to write and to pray because he desired that God's glory be made known. He desired that God be glorified in everything. And it's with that amazing view that Paul brings us our, our final point here, a gracious departure. We'll find that Paul closes this letter. As he closes this letter, he does so with a desire to recall many of his faithful friends. And he closes out the text by blessing Timothy. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. 
Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Paul never failed to remember faithful friends, faithful companions in the ministry, and therefore he sent greetings. It says, greet Prisca and Aquila. Acts chapter 18 gives us an idea of who that was. After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul calls them fellow workers in Christ. In Romans chapter 16, he says in verse, uh, verse 3 and 4, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. The work done by these two and the support that they had provided as they stuck with Paul, he wrote them back to them and says, greet them. He warmly remembered them. The household of Onesiphorus, we saw him mentioned earlier, talking in uh, chapter 1, verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Those of you with families, this is a really encouraging, just, just this little section, household of Onesiphorus. It sounds like it wouldn't be, but it's a super encouraging, just little phrase. He talks about the household. It's pointing to this fact of a saving faith that was found in this family. The family as a whole was known to be believers. They were known to be fellow workers, ones that supported Paul. Paul could have just called out Onesiphorus if it was just Onesiphorus that had done the work. But he says, the household of. I found that as I look at my son who's 18 months, I have another one coming, and I thought to myself, what an encouraging verse. What an encouraging little section of words. The household of Onesiphorus. One day, may the Lord be able to say the household of Christian, that my family is known by that. And that's something that we can then pray for all of our families. That we all can be known as these households that serve the Lord. Erastus remained at Corinth. Romans 16.23, Erastus, the city treasurer of, uh, of Corinth. He may have traveled to Macedonia with Timothy to minister as far as um, Acts 19.22 says. But we're unsure of what Erastus was doing back in Corinth. This may have just been home for him. But it, it appears he was continuing the ministry, continuing the work there. He says, I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Trophimus was a native of Ephesus and accompanied Paul from Greece to Troas. Sadly, on his trip to Rome, he must have fallen ill and was left behind. A fellow worker in the faith was remembered by Paul for his efforts. And he says, do your best to come before winter. Paul now sums up a couple of his previous statements. He says to Timothy, he first said, come to me soon. And then he says, bring the cloak. And now once again, he says, do it before winter. Do your best to come before winter, knowing that it was going to be a brutal and cold one ahead for him. Eubulus, he sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Eubulus, Pudens, and Linus are all Latin names. So it's pointing to the fact that these were probably men that were in Rome, members of the church there that might have been ministering there. We don't know much else about them except for their desire to greet Timothy. 
They cared for the fellow brothers. It's an encouragement as we have visitors here today from other areas to remind us that we have fellow brothers and sisters in other churches and other parts of the world. Other parts of our countries, other parts of our states, other parts of the world. May we keep them in our minds, in our prayers, in our hearts as we go forth. It's easy to get caught up in our local community, which is important. Local fellowship is a necessity for the believer. I, I can't, I, I, we've talked about it numerous times throughout numerous texts. I can't urge enough how important it is to have faithful brothers and sisters around you. But let us not be lost at the fact that the gospel is going out throughout the world. There's faithful men and women to be praying for, that we should desire the best for, that we should encourage when we get to know them. Claudia, we have nothing more than being a believer and a friend of Paul. She's been rumored to be the wife or mother of Linus, but it's all speculation and we're really left with nothing more. And he says, and all the brothers, which is pointing to this faithful church in Rome, they all desire to greet Timothy. They all desire the best for this faithful minister of the gospel. And here we come to this closing, um, closing line. The Lord be with your spirit. As Paul closes out the letter, he brings the attention of the reader, not anymore back to people, not anymore back to himself, but back to the Lord. He says, the Lord be with your spirit. Similarly to the Lord, as he closes out the Great Commission in Matthew 27, I'm just going to turn back there real quick. Matthew 27, and starting in verse 16, the Great Commission we see, he ends it, in verse 20 by saying, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Paul says, May the Lord be with your spirit. And then he closes with, Grace be with you. Every one of Paul's benedictions contains the words of grace. It serves, hence why Paul is known as this apostle of grace, right? It's, it's been this serving factor for every aspect of his life. The grace that comes through Christ the grace that empowers, the grace that saves, the grace that allows him to continue. And he says, grace be with you. He wishes that Timothy and in turn all believers would receive unmerited favor from the Lord, forgiveness and in the enabling power to serve him well to the very end. And so as we come to an end here in 2 Timothy, I want to leave you with a couple of parting thoughts. First, Paul, till the end, desired that the gospel be made known. He desired that all would hear the truth of God's word and that salvation would come to those that heard and believed. Let us take note of this. Paul calls us to be imitators of him, not because he was perfect, not because he was always right, but because he desired to honor God and to live that out. He desired to fulfill his commission as a part of the Great Commission. Friends, this should be our desires as believers. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been given a commission. Christ makes it clear in Matthew chapter 27, or 28, sorry, I said 27 earlier, chapter 28. And he makes it clear that we have a call upon our lives, the continuation of the gospel. That should be our desire. I'm going to read these words for you, and I want you to be encouraged by these. And remember that you have been commissioned into the army 
to go forth proclaiming this gospel. And he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, and hear these words, friends, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. You have a call upon your life, and the Lord is with you. Go forth and execute. You have a call. Go forth and do. Second, the reality is is that we will leave behind something of a legacy. We saw that in our text today. Whether we like to think about it or not, we are going to leave something behind. We will either be known for our desire to serve the Lord and to be a faithful servant of Him, or we'll be known for our desire to serve ourselves and to be faithful servants of ourselves. We see men like Demas and Alexander who are known for going against Paul. Throughout history, every person that's read this knows Demas and Alexander did not stand for truth. What that means long term, we don't know, but they didn't stand for truth. But we do see men like Mark and Tychicus who will be forever known as faithful men who served the Lord. While we should not desire our own glory, we should not desire that we may be made much of, there is nothing wrong in desiring that we are known as faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be known by that. There was an article just sent out actually yesterday from Tim Challies talking specifically about this, about how our children will look at us And they will remember us for a variety of things. Our desire should be that they remember us for being faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, I want to remind you of this final verse. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Believer, remember as you enter into the battlefield, today, tomorrow, this next week, throughout the rest of your lives, To bring the gospel truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is with you. He made it clear in his great commission. He stands with you. As Paul stood before the Roman courts, all alone the Lord was with him. No one was physically standing by his side, but the Lord Jesus was there. And this is my prayer for you. And it should be your in turn, it should be in turn your prayer for fellow believers. That they know that the Lord is with them. And as he says in the closing, grace be with you.